I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to Genesis. Today brings us to Genesis chapter 26. Wash your hands and say your prayers because Jesus and germs are everywhere. Uh, I, it's pretty catchy, isn't it? Uh, I saw that in a, a restroom recently and it reminded me of how often we use sayings like that. Uh, you usually find them in places like Hobby Lobby and they're like written on a cow or, you know, something like that. <laughs> Whatever you're into. You know, you can go to the cow section, get it on a cow. You can go to I don't know, your farmhouse section, get it on a something. Uh, so we, but we have all kinds of expressions like that. So you've probably seen, heard a few of these. Live, laugh, love. Uh, usually to help us to remember to be optimistic, I think. Uh, and I think uh, the last time I heard that one was on the progressive uh, insurance commercials, you know, and they're trying to teach their kids uh, or teach the n- young adults not to be like their parents. Uh, and so the girl, the girl's like, look, I got a sign that says live, laugh, love. And he says, throw it in the trash can. Another one, time is money. Uh, I'll admit I use this one often. If I'm trying to decide worth a ta- worth it, if a task is paying somebody to do it for me or trying to do it myself, um, time is money. Uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Nothing like good old-fashioned postmodern relativity. Am I right? You can ask me about that later if you want. Uh, like if you don't think like the Grand Canyon is beautiful, you're just, something's wrong with you, right? So I don't think that's very true. Be using the eye of the beholder. Maybe sometimes. Anyway, uh, another one uh, that you'll often see as an expression is uh, be still my heart. Um, I, I think this one's funny. Uh, and people usually say it right when they're like really happy about something, their heart is fluttering. But I just like can't help but read it literally. Like you don't want your heart to be still. That would not be very good for you. And if you use any of these, please know I still love you, right? Decorate your house with as many live, laugh, loves as you want to. Um, okay. In any case, we have all learned uh, these. We've all adopted all kinds of these kinds of sayings. Why? Because they train us. We use these kinds of sayings, no matter how silly they might be, to help us know how to approach situations in life and to remember what we should do in them. In other words, we're discipled by them. We're discipled by these kinds of sayings. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But they are passed down to us from one generation to another And now we're trained not to waste our time because time is money. We're trained by it. We're discipled by it. Chapter 26 is a bit like this. It involves passing on a tradition from one generation to the next or from one set of people to the next. And this tradition is about discipleship, right? What it means to receive an inheritance and walk in it. And pass it on to others. We, we learn from good examples in this chapter and from really bad examples. Uh, we, we learn uh, what to do and what not to do. What to emulate and what to watch out for. And, and really these good examples and bad exa- examples happen between Isaac and the Philistines in this chapter. 
And and Isaac and the Philistines become folds against which we can see the effects of what it means to raise up people after you. Especially people who seek righteousness, people who seek God. And, And as we'll see, this involves your family. This is really important for families. But as followers of Christ, this involves everyone. And so, my hope in this sermon today is that we will be encouraged in our disciple making. That it's not as crazy as it might seem, or difficult as it might seem. I want us to encourage us, but also to develop in us a prayerful yearning to pass on our inheritance in Christ to others. A prayerful prayerful yearning to make disciples. That, that we would repent by grace, by God's grace, and want to pass this stuff on. So I'd, like, I'd invite you to read with me in chapter 26. We'll read the whole chapter starting in verse 1. and Feel free to follow along on the screen. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. That's a euphemism. Laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants of the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring of water, well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, "The water is ours." So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. And then they dug another well and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, "For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruit made." Be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. 
So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Asutheth, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The first thing that we learn in this chapter is that discipleship is between sinners. Discipleship is between sinners. The, the first thing I want to point out is this entire chapter is almost like in parentheses. And what I mean by this, by that, is this. It's surrounded by the Jacob and Esau story. Right? So, right before this chapter begins, it's about Jacob and Esau. And right when this ends it picks up the Jacob and Esau story again. That's important uh, for where we left off, right? The last thing to happen is that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob, which means Esau sold his rights to the inheritance. So as we enter this chapter, and if we're kind of reading this as a book, right, just as we would a book and we're just turning pages, our minds are on inheritance, the word inheritance, the idea of inheritance and, and how inheritance works and who gets the inheritance. We are, it's just where our minds are. Now what's interesting is that the focus becomes not an inheritance of possessions, but an inheritance of sin too. In other words, just as the family in, I'm sorry, just as the family inheritance in wealth passes from one generation to the next, so the family inheritance of sin passes from one to the next. Uh, it's like my dad's house, which is a pretty messy place. And uh, one day I may inherit the possessions he wants to pass on, but I'm also going to get the mess too. Sorry, Dad, if you listen to this, um, maybe clean up some. In reading this, you might get a sense of deja vu. It's like in that scene in Lord of the Rings, the two towers, Frodo and Sam are walking around, and Frodo looks at Sam and he says, we've been here before. Right? We have. We have been here, right? We've already met this guy Abimelech earlier in Genesis, and Isaac is essentially a photocopy of his dad, Abraham. I mean, everything that happens with this guy Abimelech happened to Abraham. They both lie about their wives. Both give their wives to save their own skins. Both come into conf- conflict with the Philistines. And both, uh, both end up having a conflict over wells. And both end up making a pact with them. And now, the difference is now things are a little worse. Where Abraham's lie was a, was a half-truth, right? He said, Sarah's my sister's. Half-true. 
Isaac's lie is a whole lie. Abraham and Abimelech make amends pretty quickly back in, in chapter 20, 21. But it takes a lot longer to make amends in Isaac's case. And even the conflict that happens is worse. Like, Abraham has a conflict over one well that we read about in that chapter, but, but here, Isaac's conflict is over many wells, several wells. In other words, what we see in stark relief is that not only has Abraham passed on his inheritance, including the covenant promises, he has also passed on his sin. Uh, last year in October, Mallory and I went to a marriage and parenting conference, and, and one thing that they said, the leader said, really, really stuck out with us, or stuck out to us. It's, they said, the thing you share most in common with your kids is your sinful nature, your shared brokenness. That's true. We need to be reminded that we are no better sinners than our kids, and we have that same nature that causes them to throw temper tantrums. We have that same sinful nature. What this means is that for families, as, as families disciple their children, the discipleship is between sinners. Like you are going to pass on your sins. You are going to sin in surprising ways in front of your kids. And your kids are going to sin in ways that would surprise you. And, and the only way to lead them out of that sin or to help them cope with that sin or battle that sin or fight that sin is if you yourself are going to its only cure, the forgiveness that is found at the cross of Christ. But this not only applies to families, but to our culture as well, right? Guys, we need to remember that the thing we most share in common with our lost culture is our sinful natures. It's the same with Isaac and the Philistines. Isaac is living in a lost and broken and dark culture. We can identify with that, can't we? But we can see Isaac's sins just as clearly. And so this is where I want us to take two different scriptures to heart, okay? As we think about disciple-making within our culture and what it means that discipleship is between sinners, right? Two scriptures. The first is Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So that's honest, self-humbling, self-assessment, and self-repentance, right? Before we ever move into culture to critique culture or correct culture, we're, we're always assessing ourselves first, our motives, our loves, our goals, all those things. But the second is Paul's words in, in Ephesians. I honestly, if I'm if I'm honest, I think a lot. Not maybe not necessarily us in this room, but uh, maybe Christians in our culture get these mixed up. So Paul's words in Ephesians: Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, as much as that flesh and blood might drive us crazy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so in a world where discipleship happens between sinners, our only weapons are those strong enough to overcome a sinful nature. That doesn't happen through guns or axes or whips, but a character of righteousness, growing faith, and gospel freedom. So discipleship is between sinners, and that affects how we do discipleship. That's my point. That affects how we approach other sinners. The second thing that we learn is that discipleship is about catechism. It's a good fancy word, but before we get into it, I want to clarify what catechism means for those of you who may not be familiar with it. Catechism is is basically a short, pithy saying that helps to ingrain and remember a truth. Uh, So the book of Proverbs is essentially a book of catechism because all those verses are meant to be short and sweet so that you remember them and live by them. Okay? But here's the deal. Christians aren't the only ones who do catechism. The world also does catechism, although they may not call it that. For example... The advertising and marketing industries are, ma- are masters of catechism. I mean, they, they are geniuses at this. They want to ingrain their brand in you so that you remember them and come to prefer them. Willa already knows the jingle to Menards. And if, yeah, if you've spent all of five minutes in Menards, it's stuck in your head forever. You say big money. You say big money when you shop Menards. Like she knows it, right? Anytime we, like we're talking about budgeting, we're like, yeah, we need to save money here. She just pitches in with that. And you're like, <laughs> the jingle is longer and I know it, but I don't want to embarrass myself more. So, so there is a, a worldly, cat- by the way, Menards catechism isn't evil. It's just an example, right? <laughs> it is kind of evil for how much it gets stuck in your head, but that's neither here nor there. There is a worldly catechism. And this is what happens to the Philistines, okay? Because the events of Isaac and Abraham's life in their relation to Abimelech and the Philistines are so similar that we are being invited to compare and contrast what's the differences and the similarities. And what's remarkable, I mean, what stands out is how quickly the Philistines have forgotten and reneged on their oath to Abraham. I I mentioned earlier that, that Isaac's situation is worse here, but it's no coincidence that Isaac's conflict is over digging these wells. It's kind of, it seems odd to us, but, uh, he has this conflict over digging wells. In fact, we're told explicitly in verse 15, uh, part of the problem was this. The Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. This happened back in chapter 21. Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech over these wells that they belonged to Abraham. And, And the Philistines, they go and fill them up with dirt, which is crazy. And that's like a blatant disrespect But now, now they're claimed, not only have they stopped them up, but now 
when Isaac does all the work, they're like, oh, these wells are ours now. There's, there's more that I could point out in this chapter. But this is enough to show that they don't care about Abraham and they don't care about the covenant that they made with him. They don't care. They have, they have no concern. Abimelech could have catechized them over Abraham and over their covenant with him, that they should stay faithful to it, that they should remember Abraham. But instead, they show a great lack of care, and this is exactly how the world catechizes. Worldly catechism teaches and ingrains solely for itself. Only what's good for the world, only what's good for the self. It's, it's not grounded in truth. It's not grounded in history. It's not grounded in time-tested tradition, but only in whims and fads. What's good for the moment? What's good for now? What's good for me today? In contrast, godly catechism is rooted not only in time-tested truth, but in God's revelation. In his word. Abraham undoubtedly catechized Isaac, right? And, and what would Abraham catechize Isaac about other than God's promises, his, his covenants, and, and what God says, he, uh, my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So listen, like God told Abraham a lot more than we have recorded in Scripture. I'm sure Abraham it, it catechized Isaac on all of these things, which is the groundwork for when God appears to Isaac. God appears to Isaac not just once in this chapter, but twice. And, and whereas the Philistines don't care about Abraham at all, God deals with Isaac exclusively because of Abraham. Right? God appears to Abraham in verse 4. He repeats the promises. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why? Because... Of my servant Abraham, because Abraham obeyed my voice. The same thing happens in, in verse 24. I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. Why? For my servant Abraham's sake. So there's a contrast even between God and the Philistines. The Philistines are faithless covenant partners with Abraham, whereas God is a faithful covenant partner with Abraham. God remembers Abraham and is continuing his faithfulness and his graces to Abraham's family. God is instilling and ingraining in Isaac all the covenants and promises he made to his father so that Isaac will remember them, walk in them, and become a faithful covenant partner himself. And this is why Discipleship is about catechism. And guys, church history is filled with examples of churches wanting to distill and ingrain the truth of Scripture into one another and into future generations. Right? When we read the Apostles' Creed, that is catechism. That is the early church developing a formulation to help ingrain for, for us to remember and walk in these truths. Baptist tradition, unfortunately, has dropped catechism in the last 100 years. And this is why I want us to read Scripture together. 
Every time you leave here, every time I leave here, we go into a world that is trying to catechize us into unfaithfulness. We receive a million messages about what is going to fill us, what is going to make us happy, what is going to bring us joy and meaning. A guy named Alan Jacobs said, culture catechizes and people through media, the internet, social media, subject themselves to its catechesis all day long, every single day, hour after hour after hour. And the only way to compete with that is if we are grounded in Scripture, fervent in prayer, and connected to a local church. The only way to compete with that. We want to be ingrained with God's Word. We, we want His Word taught. We want His Word preached. We want to sing His Word. We want to read His Word. We want to pray His Word. This is, what, this is what Paul means, uh, again, when he wrote in Ephesians. He says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Because discipleship is about catechism. What we teach and ingrain and remember to walk in them. Third, discipleship is a trajectory. This, this third point really is, is a result of the first two. It, it flows from discipleship being between sinners and discipleship being about catechism. Because here's the deal. Discipleship can be a painfully slow process. Either ourselves as disciples or someone else that we're trying to disciple. And often how we're being catechized doesn't show itself immediately. It, it takes time for fruit to show. You could bring in a, a peach tree or an orange tree right here and put it in, in front of me and say, what is this tree? And I couldn't tell you until there were peaches on it. And then I'd be like, oh, that's a peach tree or oranges. That's, that's an orange tree. And you have to wait until they bear fruit, especially, right? Especially if you plant them as a sapling, you have to wait for the fruit to show itself. And in the case of the Philistines, the fruit that's revealed even after many years is rotten fruit. So there's a little bit of hope, right? If we don't know the future of the Philistines yet, we're reading this like for the first time, there's, there's hope for the Philistines, right? They make this covenant with Abraham, things seem to go well, but when for the first indication that they have rotten fruit is when they learn that Isaac is lying about his wife, there's, there's no immediate reconciliation, in Abraham's case, there's, the reconciliation is immediate between them, between them, but not in this case. So they're, they're, the Philistines are not as quick to forgive or reconcile anymore. Uh, we learn in verse 14, and a very important point, that they envied him and they made him leave, right? Which we know in this case is a bad thing because um, Isaac <laughs> asked them, why have you come to me seeing that you hate me? <laughs> right? Like, you hate me. So you sent me away. So they sent him away. I mean, they plugged up all of Abraham's wells, as we saw, and they quarrel with Isaac over the ones he digs up. And even when they make this covenant with Isaac, there's two things that, that are really interesting. They use language to justify themselves, right? They're, they say, seeing that we, we has not touched you and have done nothing to you but 
good. Uh, No, you haven't. But also, we have no reason to believe they'll keep it because they already broke the one with Abraham. And, and like I mentioned earlier, we're, we learn many years later just how antagonistic to God's people they become. Uh, Samson and the Philistines, David and Goliath being the preeminent example, Goliath being a, a Philistine. So, so the, their trajectory is one of rotten fruits. And we also had this little mention of Esau at the end as well. We saw how little he cares for righteousness, right? He sold his, birth, his birthright. He cares little for righteousness. But also, he cares little for righteousness when he takes these foreign wives. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, to be his wife. Uh, and I just want to say, like, there is, um, if you're like wanting to marry a girl and like her dad's name is like beer or whiskey or something, it may not be a good idea. Ah, that's cheesy. Okay. Anyway, he took Beeri the Hittite to be his wife. I'm sorry, that was really cheesy. Um, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they, this is the important point, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The, the indication or the implication of that is that like, he's intentionally wanting to make his parents feel bitter by doing this. Esau's trajectory is, is rotten fruit. And that, that really ties into the last chapter of you want to go listen to that. But then you have Isaac. Isaac has a, uh, a trajectory, and it's not always clear. Uh, in the last chapter, we learned that he favors Esau over Jacob. And uh, based on what God told them about Esau and Jacob, we know that Isaac is looking at Esau from a human point of view. He's, he's looking at Esau as, as the firstborn, as, as the manly man. He's not looking at him according to God's word. He tells a, a full lie about his wife and he gives her away. But the difference is Isaac's life is a totally different trajectory. Sometimes good fruit is hard to see, but good fruit will eventually show itself. Yes, it's true. In the life of a believer, sometimes good fruit is hard to find, but eventually it will either reveal itself as good fruit or as rotten fruit. So listen, this is, this is an encouragement, right? Especially as we try to disciple our kids uh, or, or one another, our churches. Discipleship doesn't happen all at once. And, and we don't see the, the fruit or the results of what we want immediately. Sometimes it's several steps backward. And if you're raising kids, you know exactly how that feels. And... It can be even more painful when you're trying to disciple a fellow Christian and they just, they're stuck in the, those pockets of sin. Maybe it seems like they do better and they just fall right back into it. But what we pray for is that the Word of God would take root and that we wait on the Lord to work underneath the surface. We wait patiently for that to happen. So discipleship is a trajectory. Finally, very quickly, discipleship is intimacy with God. This chapter really hinges right on two appearances by God to Isaac. God appears to Isaac first at the very beginning, and then secondly in the middle. And in both instances, God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham and does something else. 
transfers the promises and the blessings to Isaac. Isaac is the inheritor of the covenant and of the promises. He's the inheritor of righteousness, which is my inspiration for the title there, Inheritance of Righteousness. What's interesting about chapter 6 is like this is basically the only glimpse, the only big glimpse into Isaac's life that we get. We had many chapters with Abraham. We have this chapter, and then we get into Isaac or Jacob and Esau. So it's not unimportant that the only glimpse we get into his life is God's appearance and its pivotal nature to him. If this is the only glimpse that we get, we have two appearances by God in it. This wasn't about behavior modification or trying to act good or trying to memorize a bunch of important stuff. This was about being transformed from the inside out through intimacy with God. Any success we have in discipleship will be, cut, will be because of our intimacy with God. Not just doing all the right things and not making our prayer life a checklist. Intimacy with God is not just I check off reading my Bible, check off praying, but actually seeking to know God. To know His glory and His holiness. To know His hatred of sin. To know His, his wisdom and His power. To know his, his mercy and His love. To know Him as, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also, to know His covenant. Church, it's important that we know God's covenant with us. God reaffirms His covenant with Isaac here on the basis of Abraham. But here's, here's where that's not good for us. The covenant with Abraham was not only limited to Abraham's family, but the family members which God chose. We saw that with Jacob and Esau in the last chapter. But it is because of His covenant with Abraham that He enters into a new covenant with us. It is through the promises that He gave to Abraham that the promised child was born by another mother of promise. Jesus Christ is the greater Isaac who inherited and received all the promises and blessings of Abraham. He is the true inheritor of righteousness all for our behalf. And it is through Jesus Christ that the transfer of blessing and righteousness comes to us. It is through no one else, no act of obedience of our own, but by the faithfulness of a gracious Savior on our behalf. And listen, it is through faith and a growing intimacy with Him that we invite others into this inheritance. It is a glorious inheritance. It is a beautiful inheritance. And it is freely available through Him. But only through Him. Only through Christ. So, let us draw near to Christ. 
was draw near in, in intimacy to Him. That He would make disciples out of us so that we would make disciples out of others. Let's respond to Him this morning. Lord Jesus, when you set your affection on us, you chose us. You chose to set upon us an undying, passionate, and divine love. You loved us while we were still sinners. And and you set a seal of ownership on us where you say over us, Mine. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the inheritance that you keep for us. An inheritance that is unspoiled and unfading. Thank you for our righteousness that we possess right now. That is unspoiling and unfading. A righteousness that that you procured, that you earned, and that you gave to us the moment we trusted in You. Forever. Thank You. Lord, You disciple us gently and patiently. Thank You for the trajectory that we have. Because if it was up to us, our trajectory would be one of rotten fruit and condemnation. But because you disciple us with grace and mercy, it's, it's not step backwards, but step forwards. Grace when we stumble. Grace when we do step backwards. So Lord Jesus, because you disciple us so, help us to disciple others in a growing relationship with you. May the grace that you have given us not Stay with us, but help us to absorb more and more of Your grace that that grace will abound to others. Lord, help us to find someone to disciple into righteousness, whether it's our kids or or someone we know. Help us to enjoy together all with one another through a growing faith help us to enjoy more of your love that has no breadth that has no height that has no depth no measure that we would so enjoy that love that our love for you would just grow and grow and grow into infinity and eternity and it's in your name that we pray lord to work in us amen